It's Monday, it's midnight, it's my top ten. Joining me this week is comedy writer and prolific tweeter Sarah Gibbs. Her credits include things like Have I Got News For You, Dead Ringers, The News Quiz, The Now Show, News Jack. And she's also co-founded Succubus Magazine, a satirical women's magazine spotlighting new comedy writers. I went to her house on a very rainy day, so rainy you can hear the rain on the window panes every now and then. Welcome to my top 10 pod. I'm joined this week by the lovely Sarah Gibbs, uh, comedy writer extraordinaire. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Thank you for getting my name right. That is unprecedented. Glad to be of service. What is your subject for today? Uh, So I am talking about my top 10 favourite narrative comedy slash comedy drama slash, I guess, comedy horror TV shows. Um... I'm a comedy writer and I one day hope to write something competent, so um, it's sort of an area of interest for me. So, uh, based on uh, your saying that you're a comedy writer, what would you say are your three biggest career highlights? Oh, I'm going to get get to one of them um, in the podcast. It's not even a career highlight, it's just something I got to do as a result of doing this career. So I think I'll save one of them up. Oh, I like it. Um, But probably, I think... My first ever credit, watching Jan Ravens reading out one of my sketches, was one of the biggest highlights because it was my first one um, that I had made sort of for radio. Um, And I really didn't expect to have anything on. I was a non-commissioned writer and I just sort of tried my luck. And it was Brexit week on Dead Ringers. um, So just super unlikely that I would get anything on. And it was such a big shock and it got such a huge laugh. um, And it was it just I just came in on such a high in my career. And I remember just going home on the tube on the clouds, just you know, smiling at strangers, um, absolutely appalling behaviour. Uh, it was great. Um, gosh, and another career highlight, being followed by J.K. Rowling on Twitter, that, that was a career highlight. It's got nothing to do with my abilities um, as a comedy writer, but I think if I wasn't in this industry, J.K. Rowling might never have followed me on Twitter and my life wouldn't have been complete. So. Wow. So do you feel that, uh, an added pressure uh, in your tweets, knowing that she's following you? Well, she's been kind of quiet on Twitter for a little while. So, I, you know, at first, yeah, everything was very carefully vetted and um, geared to, you know, I, I looked into everything she liked. And I'm totally joking if she's listening. <laughs> um, but no, um, I think I think when people that you admire follow you, you do get into a kind of mindset of have to be impressive, have to be impressive. And then something annoys you and you just go off on one and all that goes out the window. And honestly, quite often, that's the reason that people like that followed you in the first place. And I guess you just have to have confidence in yourself as a human that you're not going to put everyone off with your terrible personality. It's a fine line, isn't it? Uh, Between saying things for yourself and saying things that everyone's going to be able to read. Mm. So we've sort of jumped the gun a little bit here. What would you say 
um, your life story is in three sentences. Oh, gosh. Um, reformed, hippie, late diagnosed, autistic, sad clown. Oh, sad clown. Yeah. But then isn't that the <laughs> default position for a clown, I suppose? Aren't they all sad behind the makeup? I think so. I think they're all overcompensating for something. Oh, I forgot one more career highlight. Can I, can I yeah, get that in? Yeah, please do. Meeting Larry the Cat. Uh, as in Downing Street, As in Downing Larry. Street, the real, the actual Larry, and picking him up, um, which I don't think the police officers guarding him appreciated. <laughs> I didn't even know you could get you sort of in front. No, was it, did you have a pass or something? I was there for an event, and um, and there he was sitting on the steps, and I couldn't resist. I had to, had to grab him and have a photo. And how did your own cats feel about that? They weren't happy, and actually, I, I talked about it the whole way home. Like it was an event where like the prime minister was there, and it was filled with celebrities, and all I could talk about the whole way home was Larry the cat. Um, and I got home, and just I was looking at my cats, like you're not Larry. Um, <laughs> we've gotten over it, but yeah, they, I love them, but they can't compare, can they? Well, I don't know. We've got one sat next to us now, dear listeners, and she looks lovely. Is she? She's pretending to be asleep, but I'll pay for this later. Yeah, she's flexing her claws occasionally. <laughs> I'll get you. So let's move on to your list. What is at number 10? At number 10, we have a show called The Good Wife. Have you seen The Good Wife? I've seen um, some of The Good Wife. Uh, Fine nowadays, and it's something I'll probably keep repeating as we go through the list, that it's very difficult to see a series through just Mm. because there's so much stuff out there. Yeah, and American series are long, and yes. they they have. And I, actually, I've just realised looking at this list that pretty much all of these are American series. So um, I don't know what that says about my taste, but um, basically, The Good Wife is like an American legal and political comedy drama. I guess I, it's billed as a drama, but it's definitely a comedy drama. Yeah. Um, and it's about a woman who's sort of disgraced by her politician husband's affair and goes back to work as a lawyer um so kind of echoes of clinton and i i guess wiener um all those scandals uh but it's just tonally absolutely gorgeous the writing is really really sharp and the characters are immense um and it's one of the most bingeable shows i've watched in a really long time the interesting thing i think about this story is how it sort of starts with the more well-known person in the couple going to the prison um, and we follow the wife and how she copes mm. and I think that's quite an interesting dynamic to start with. Yeah I mean I think it's interesting because really for me it's a show about feminism it's, it's a show about strong female characters and it, it's not just about her coping it's about her thriving she goes back to work and she's been absent for a period of about 15 years which she sort of abandoned her career quite early on to have a family um and it it sort of asks questions about you know is it okay for women to have this raw ambition and to be ruthless and you know that it comes up a lot that she feels guilty about um about sort of neglecting her kids and which she's obviously not neglecting them but you know, spending time away from them to work um so it draws on those themes a lot but Alicia Florick, who's the main character, is really someone with a lot of naked ambition. And she's, you know, she's not just there surviving because she has to. She's really there to compete and make something of herself and 
and sort of take on the world, which is, I think, another level. I mean, I think for me, the show is about really the conflict between what she should be and what and what she really wants. So, you, you know, what's appropriate and what she desires. And you see that in every facet of her life. Um, but you also see it with a lot of the other female characters as well. Um, and some of them are more enigmatic than others. Um, but what I love also about The Good Wife is their stable of recurring characters um, who are just really, really fun and quirky um, and sort of... I guess really unexpected uh, and when they come back they build a real rapport with the audience that I, I think guest characters don't don't do so often in other shows you know they don't rely so heavily on on sort of outsiders but it builds a whole world you know they have instead of google or facebook as their sort of technological evil company they have chum hum mm-hmm. um and they have this whole sort of foot in the real world where they deal with really zeitgeisty issues but also um, they have their own sort of universe going on where um, I guess neg checks and stuff but everything's different um, but yeah it's, it's really something to immerse yourself in um, and you know it's 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 wry humor it's not it's not set up punchline jokes it's not a sitcom but you you do find yourself sort of smiling and laughing along with a lot of it and it you know it breaks a lot of the tension of the drama. There, are, a lot of that tension is undercut by humour, which I really enjoy. And you said about there being a breadth of characters. Um, have you seen the, the the spin-off, The Good Fight, that follows um, Christine Baranski? That follows Christine Baranski's character. Um, so, have you got involved with that one yet? Is that a good watch I have. as well? Um, it's it's okay. it's okay it's not it's i mean it's good it's enjoyable i haven't enjoyed it as much as i enjoyed the good wife and i'm not sure why that is i think um it's trying to sort of deal with the age of trump in a way that's very very difficult it's i guess it's trying to satirize it in a way and that's really difficult to do it's really hard to well, out trump trump itself isn't it yeah. constantly daily <laughs> So, so I found I found that a little bit more of a struggle to get into, and I haven't looked forward to each episode as much. Um, and I think also with with shows like this, like I've looked at, I just had a th- think about what these shows have in common that I've chosen. And one of the threads I identified was I really need a good romance to sort right. of keep me hooked in, like a will they, won't they, something to really invest in. Um, and actually, um, I do sort of struggle to to get involved with shows if there's not a you know a, a central couple that I really root for um which I think is just again a personal preference like I'm you know I'm I'm an old romantic if Roisin and Kiara hadn't done mm-hmm. rom-coms that probably would have been what I would have chosen um so uh, there's not a lot of that the relationships in the good fight are quite corrupt um and I, I guess um you don't quite trust the dynamic of the couples um the, the central couple to the show you know, have both cheated on each other quite a lot and things shift underfoot for them a lot and you don't really feel the strength of their relationship in the same way. So I think that makes it a little bit harder to watch. And the character I thought who really sort of lent himself to um, a, a spin-off series would have been um, Kalinda. But yeah. But then I saw that she disappears at the end of series six. So um, I think there was some tension between the two central female actors, which is a real shame. Um, there's a sort of a rumour that the last um, 
scene that they filmed together was green screened because they just wouldn't be in the same room. Wow. I don't know whether or not that's true. Kalinda was a shame because first of all, they I think they made her enigmatic to the point of making her a void of character in a way. I think that's enjoyable at first. And then you do need to be sort of let into the character's feelings and workings, which we are a little bit. But there's a horrific storyline with her ex-boyfriend where, you know, he's an abusive ex and he comes back and there's sort of this weird dynamic of control and power between them. And it's for me, actually, when I rewatch, I fast forward the scenes with Kalinda and her boyfriend. I can't I can't watch them. There's a quite infamous scene with Kalinda and an ice cream, which I find so cringeworthy to watch like you'll you'll get there um but it's just it's so painfully sort of butt clenching to watch it that i just can't it's it's like they took a dive out of her character she's kind of a badass and and i guess this guy is her achilles heel but it for me it it destroys the essence of the character a little bit when they go down that route with the storyline so what's at number nine number nine and this is going to be controversial that it's not higher up i think is friends right um so friends is obviously like the quintessential sitcom isn't it and it should be higher up um but it's not because i think it's just aged so poorly that i just like you find it hard to justify sort of putting it at number one exalting it as the show to watch especially as a writer yeah i'd agree it's like you're um, cantankerous old uncle that sits in the corner and says things that are funny but maybe not necessarily for this sort of time yeah I think a lot of the jokes in uh, first of all I mean I think I should say why I like it because obviously it's in my top 10 for a reason um, I it, it's you know it's it's impeccably written and executed and I think that's it's easy as a writer in the UK because the industry is very different here so in America obviously they have rooms full of about 25 me's um all discussing things and sort of honing every line to perfection and in the uk you're supposed to be your own solo genius with the help of maybe a producer or a co-writer if you're lucky but so so as a writer when you watch friends and you go god that's perfect and then you have to remember that you're comparing it to sort of a super steroid team of writers and and it's just little old me um but in terms of the chemistry of the actors, um, the the definition of the characters, and just just the perfection of the sort of the the pace and the setup, punchline, one liners that are just constant. Um, and I think the pathos and heart of the show, which is really important, you know, you really invest and care about these characters. It's not it's not just a thing that resets every week. Um, you know, it's I think it's largely unparalleled. Um, and it was such a simple concept. It's just, you know, friends. It's, it, sets, it does what it says on the tin. It's just yeah. a group of six friends hanging out and you want to be part of their gang and see what their lives turn out to be. And that's that's what it delivers. And you said that you like uh, a romantic couple to root for. You've got several of them in Friends, haven't you? So in an ideal world, how would those relationships have all finished for you? Um, Rachel would have stayed on the plane. <laughs> that's a controversial opinion too I think but um, I hated Ross and Rachel not at the time on a first watch I loved Ross and Rachel and thought it was the ultimate in romance and now I rewatch it and I think Ross is just the epitome of toxic masculinity yeah. I, think, I just think he's the worst um, he's just the ultimate nice guy he thinks that just because he's you know been kind to Rachel a few times he he's he sort of earned sex tokens or something that he, he's entitled to be with her 
Um, and I think the the gang enable that. This whole, you know, he's her lobster. It's and actually, it's a very toxic dynamic. Um, he doesn't let her be who she is. He belittles her. He's jealous constantly, even when it's completely unjustified, and it, it's proven to be unjustified. Um, I just yeah. So for me, the central couple has always been Monica and Chandler. Um, I think they have a much healthier relationship. I think Monica's more in control in that relationship and Chandler just feels lucky, which I love. Um, I, I love that, that, you know, he's at her beck and call, he'd do anything for her, but they don't portray him as whipped or a sissy. It's nice, it's, not, it's refreshing that, that they have that kind of closeness and intimacy and it was born out of, you know, genuine friendship and affection rather than, I think, this sort of fantasy illusory love that, um, that Ross has for Rachel. Um, yeah, so so around the time that Monica and Chandler got together, I think, you know, that's when they're... I mean, I think I was always invested in Friends because it's Friends, but that was that was a highlight for me. And I think you mentioned the characters and that, how they're all sort of well-drawn. I think you can almost imagine what they would say in any given situation, can't you? They're so well-fleshed out. Mm. Like, you could guess what Joey would say in any sort of particular environment. And I think that's... Well, is that a strength of the writing or a strength of the acting, he asks the writer. I think it's both. Um, I, I think Joey without um, without um, Matt LeBlanc's, you know, warmth and lovability would just be a, a dick who preys on women. Um, and I, I, but I think the, the writing, you know, they... They're well fleshed out, but also they are simplistic and they're caricatures. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not complex real people with complex needs and wants and unpredictable behaviours. They're they fit very neatly into boxes. You know, you can describe them all in probably three lines. Um and I think that's why it's they they become I'm not gonna say easier to write for because that, that seems like horrific hubris. Um I'm you know, I'm sure if I wrote an episode of Friends it would be a hot mess. But um I think their voices are clearer because they they are you know in a box sitcom characters um and they very much um correlate to sitcom family you know almost you could draw a graph of it you know joey's the stupid one um you know ross is the dad of the group you know phoebe's the kooky one and you can you can kind of i guess the traits are designed so that they rub up against each other in ways that aggravate each other and you know for comedic effect but also we see why they like each other um and why they're friends and why they stick together um so it's 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 almost very cynically and very well designed um but it works beautifully i think we should touch on your reasons for having it so low um on the list um found online uh Someone called Sarah Gibbs had retitled the shows or some of the shows um, in a more sort of up-to-date way. So uh, you had the one with Ross's creepy sex anniversary, for example, and it sort of sums up, and also actually this one I really liked, the one where Chandler won't fire an attractive woman so convinces his entire workplace that she's mentally unstable. Uh, There's a sort, you've sort of encapsulated there unease you know the unease that modern times have with the show yeah so for me it's 
There's a few things that they consistently make fun of that I don't think are really appropriate. Or like, I, I, I certainly, if I was writing a show today, it would just be like, well, that's offensive, and it would go out the window. So first of all, the constant fat shaming jokes. Like Monica is the butt of the joke because she was overweight when she was younger, um, and effectively just the entire show just well there's a huge strand of the show that circulates around this joke that Monica would have been unlovable and disgusting and a loser if she was you know if she was larger and I just think that obviously from a modern perspective that's horrifically offensive um and then there's the sort of deluge of gay jokes and no homo jokes between uh, mainly between Chandler and Joey but it happens with a few other characters um, but it, it is constant and you know you sort of watch every episode and cringe at things they say and go you know it, it's just it's just not something you would even bat an eyelid at today um, Ross you know one thing that sticks out Ross having an issue with his nanny being a man um, just all these ideas of gender roles and, and stereotyping and it's interesting because you have such strong female characters and people like Monica and Rachel who are really you know and and, and Phoebe to, to an extent although um, Phoebe is somewhat enigmatic but I think you know they, they're in charge and they have these wonderful careers and, and, and they provide for themselves and they, they don't take crap from the guys and then you have these men with these horribly regressive ideas and sort of toxic male ideas and there's one episode in particular where Chandler's biggest secret is that he wants I mean it's not I don't know it's not said that it whether or not he kissed someone who's transgender or or it was transsexual but the, the how it's framed in the show is Chandler once accidentally kissed a man that he thought was a woman um and that's his biggest darkest secret and you know even ross crapping himself on a on a ride um doesn't compare to the shame of chandler having accidentally kissed a man it's it it, there's so much of it that you watch and you go these are the messages that i grew up with yeah and you i think there's so much of it that when you're young and impressionable and you're watching things like that and you think well that's that's the lay of the land that's that's how things are and actually then you step into the real world and go Oh God! What what horrible messages was I receiving, and you know how much of this did I absorb, and how much do I have to unlearn? So, you know, friends were such a seminal part of my upbringing, and it will always have a place in my heart. But also, I'm kind of mad at it for educating me so poorly. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it was mildly racist, and also the message of keeping a monkey or a duck or a goose in an apartment. Yeah, just, I, I wonder if that would get through nowadays whether the writer's room would say, come on, really? I mean, I think, you know, animal cruelty is sort of the the bottom of the, the list of issues. As you said, it is racist. Um, I think they they have maybe one black person on the entire series um, in and, and not really in a meaningful capacity, just as a sort of peripheral love interest. It's, it's, re, it's a very, very white show. Um, so that, yeah, it's... It's difficult to watch from a modern perspective um, and just enjoy. Like, I find myself go- going, oh, for God's sakes, every five seconds. Uh, so that kind of... It hasn't destroyed the legacy of the show for me, but it makes it harder to just relax and watch it, which is another thing that when I was looking at the shows that I chose, I didn't choose shows that I thought were sort of highbrow or, you know, um, I guess, critically acclaimed. 
I chose shows that I want to sit and binge watch in my pajamas over and over again. Um, and so that's why Friends is so low down on the list because I think it's made it harder to do that um, and be a relaxing pursuit. But that said, it's still enduring, and I think it justifies its place on your list. Mm. I still often will just stick an episode on the iPad while I'm cleaning the bathroom or doing the washing up or something, because it's so instantly pick-upable, isn't it? It's so watchable. Yeah, and it's safe, and it's sort of comforting. It's background noise, almost to an extent. Um, You know, you're so used to it, and the characters are so familiar that it's a safe world to enter. So, yeah, it absolutely deserves its place on the list, but I think nine is probably an appropriate place to leave it yeah i'd agree um so what is one place ahead of it at number eight and number eight we have the marvelous mrs Maisel, um which is quite a recent show um it's only two seasons in so this might not age well uh, <laughs> don't know where they're going with it but um it's a show about a new york wealthy jewish housewife in the 1950s whose husband cheats on her and she sort of stumbles into a bar gets on a stage um starts monologuing and like lo and behold she delivers a perfect type five minutes without having written a word um it is pure fantasy this show is that that's probably why it's number eight because it's, it's nonsense um it's it's a world of opulence and wealth and you know it, yes there's a message of female empowerment but also female empowerment strongly enabled by having you know a very comfortable life and fall back and the obstacles aren't really obstacles for her I mean as they would be for someone else in different socio-economic conditions for example but it's it's that's also part of the charm it's pure escapism um it's just something to watch and marvel at as you say um and Amy Sherman Palladino um, has a great track record. So uh, Gilmore Girls nearly made this list, actually, but got bumped because for the same reason as Friends, it just hasn't aged well. Um, but what Amy Sherman Palladino does beautifully is just absorbs you into a world of pure fantasy and then just lets you relax there. N- nothing moves really fast. There are episodes where barely anything happens. It's just a lot of talking. It's just a lot of the characters talking. But the dialogue and the back and forth is so delightful and the characters are so lovable and sort of every scene looks like a still from a 1950s Vogue page. It's just gorgeous to watch and really absorbing and comforting. And it includes Lenny Bruce. It does. So how... Beautiful, beautiful version of Lenny Bruce who is very easy to fall in love with as a viewer. I'm only a couple of episodes in. Um, So how... So I'm not quite sure how his relationship goes with the show, but is, does it follow any real-life events, or is it just a comedian that's called Lenny Bruce and there was one in real life? Yeah, um, forgive my ignorance, it may well follow real-life events, but I haven't, um, I haven't matched them up. But he's not, he's not a central part of the show in particular. He's just sort of a bit part who's there to, I guess, deus ex Lenny Bruce, um, jump in and save um, Midge when she's in over her head or she's insulted the top promoter in town and needs to sort of get back on a stage so really he's there to enable her um as a character um and we do see a little bit of him but it's all about her really and how do you rate her stand-up 
Oh, that's the only problem I have with the show. It's <laughs> so bad. I'm not stand-up, so I feel I don't really feel qualified to diss it. But I, I think that's the only frustrating part of the show is that the the dialogue is so sharp and brilliant and and it's so capable. But the stand-up is it really is sort of on a level of how about that airplane food? It's it's not great. I I I guess they're stylizing it to an era maybe, um, and also. You know, she she develops it. She hones her craft, and I I like that. So that she with with Susie, who's her manager, who is just the the most terrific character. Um, they she has a bad gig, and she sort of stomps off stage and is angry about it, and goes, "But but I'm good. But I'm really good." She can't understand that she has to sort of work at her craft, and then you see a montage of her work, you know, working towards her tight five minute or ten minute set or whatever it was um and that's quite gratifying but still the stand-up isn't it isn't sublime and i think that's the only thing that really for me lets the show down so how does a writing montage work because a rocky beefing himself up montage is quite action-packed how can you make a writing montage and this is the only bit of the show that's actually quite realistic to me you see her sort of write the joke and then deliver it and then sort of go away make her notes and then She's she comes back she delivers it slightly differently with a you know a tighter punchline or the funniest word at the end quite realistic things that a writer would do and go you know actually wait I I should have written it that way uh, it's you know the same sentiment but expressed differently um, until she really gets it right and she gets that she hits the that gold mine that we're all looking for um, so as a writer I found that quite relatable um, but yeah the rest of it it's not relatable is not a word I would apply to the show but it's so it's it's just um it's so atmospheric and so wonderful and so and uh, uh, rachel brosnahan i think i said that right there's a lot of brosnahan hands um mm-hmm. she um she plays midge with such a warmth and I, again it's it's such a great casting choice because i think midge played by the wrong person could be insufferable she you know she is she's an incredibly self-centered character um she she makes a lot of mistakes she's frustrating um she's a very negligent mother um and i think if she'd been played differently it that the whole show could have collapsed but it's her warmth and likability that sort of shines through and really makes the show so easy to watch and as you said the 1950s sort of look to it is it's very you know you can you you feel like you're in the 1950s don't you when you're watching it it's all so well thought through so so well uh, shot Mm. is there a time period that you would like to inhabit i think i'd like to inhabit the aesthetic of the 1950s and absolutely nothing else about it um, for obvious reasons um although sometimes it feels like we're heading back there without the aesthetic which is the best bit um but you know one of my interests is sort of i guess 50s high fashion um yeah it's got you can't see it's a podcast but i've got a or book on my um on my coffee table and uh, you know I, I really love that sort of new look silhouette and everything about it so it's a really gratifying watch for me and actually I was looking at um again the reasons why I've chosen these shows and what they had in common and aesthetic is a big thing for me I really like to enjoy what I'm looking at aesthetically you know if something's quite gritty um and maybe I, I, I'm a bit squeamish and I don't generally enjoy things that are sort of quite 
visually violent or dark. Um, and so I like inhabiting worlds that are bright and beautiful and airy. And, and this ticks a lot of uh, airy and I don't want to say airy. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's not a bad. That's Still a Jewish. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Really different thing. Um, and that's another thing about the show. It's very, very, very Jewish. Um, and I'm very, very Jewish. Um, so I, I enjoy sort of seeing an aspect of my experience. I enjoy seeing her in synagogue and singing the same songs that I sang growing up and the same sort of family arguments and dynamics. And I like being in on that joke as well. And quite a few shows on this list, I think, have Jewish themes, um, which is basically just a very self-centred viewer. And this show marks sort of the, the changing of uh, production of the things we watch and how we consume them, because it's an Amazon Studios for an Amazon Prime audience mm-hmm. um, and do do find you sort of swing more to one uh, streaming service than others or no I just I follow the content so you know I think you know Netflix and Amazon Prime are probably where it's at for me mostly yeah um, just whoever's got the shows that they want to watch and I have to occasionally jump on now TV's bandwagon as well oh yeah uh, but uh, constantly got the entertainment thing going because it's so cheap isn't it yeah um, i mean we've, we've got subscriptions to everything because i think when when you're in my job you sort of have to that's my excuse anyway you have to yeah. be on top of what's happening and you can't just not be watching the shows that people are watching but yeah i think uh, you know the the move to streaming obviously creates a lot more opportunities um opportunities that i one day hope to capitalize on so um, i'm all for that be nice if they could just somehow reformulate so that the TV licence and all the streaming services are all just in one lump sum rather than having to subscribe to them all individually. It's so inconvenient, isn't it? I've got a business idea there. Yeah, let's get it made. Um, So number seven on your list. Number seven is 30 Rock. Um, And I chose that one because this is going to sound so loosely um, and everyone's going to laugh at me because expectations versus reality but it's the show that made me want to be a comedy writer um so i used to be in another life a wedding blogger and journalist and pr um and after i did that i sort of took a couple of years out and did some songwriting projects and i was in a band and sort of lost my way in life a little bit and when that stopped happening um i pretty much had no idea what i was going to do with myself uh, and so I just took, I, I, I mean, had the luxury of being able to take a couple of months out of life. Um, I say like take a couple of months out in a cheerful way. I just went into a really horrible depression um, and, um, and just had no idea, completely directionless. And I binge watched 30 Rock. And I think I just got brainwashed. I think I just sat there in my underpants, like, you know, eating what's it's and watching 30 Rock. I think I, I could do that. I'm just like her. Um, and so then I listened to uh, Tina Fey's audiobook. Yes, Bossy Pants. Well. Yeah, good. Um, and then I listened to Yes Please by Amy Poehler, which I'll get to. And by then I was just completely brainwashed. Um, I was I, I was convinced that you know these women were kindred spirits, and if they could do it, I could do it, and it would be just like it was on TV. Um, and so I started looking into comedy. Um, and I went to improv classes and I was okay at it and I enjoyed it, but it was far away. Um, and I, like, I did a couple of um, rounds of it and then sort of 
decided not you know it was it was too far to make the journey every week um and then i you know just thought how am i going to get into comedy um and pretty much just off the back of watching 30 rock decided i was going to apply for the national film and television schools comedy writing diploma just such a weird massive life choice to make based on um, something that isn't doesn't have any basis in reality at all i mean probably the american reality to an extent but you know it's a sitcom about a completely different industry um and you know even even at that point i was thinking what am i doing the application the first question is are you funny and i was like <laughs> not answering that like <laughs> so how did you answer that I can't can remember. remember. Um, I think I, I, I hope so. You know, you can be the judge of that. <laughs> yeah. You know, something something self-deprecating and nervous. Um, because the last thing I wanted to do was say, yes, I'm really funny, and then attach the first sketches I'd ever written, which were yeah. for my application. Um, and for them to be like, oh, no. I don't, actually, I'm too scared to read those back. I'm sure they were hideous. Um, but I did the application, and I sent it off. And I didn't really know much about the NFTS, apart from it was the only sort of comedy course that looked really good in the country and it was an association with Channel 4 and they had all these amazing guests. Um, and yeah, I went for my interview and with the very stern, I hope he doesn't mind me saying, Bill Dare, who was in scary mode that day, he produces Dead Ringers. Um, I think that day he was really in interview mode and sort of giving nothing away. Um, and I'd had a really bad morning that morning and I, I sort of came there with my almost with my tail between my legs and he goes you know you're the, you're at least experienced applicant and I was like but but I work really really hard I'm gonna work so hard I'm such a hard worker and sort of yeah he I, he later described my interview as very frowny which is obviously what you want from a potential comedy writer um but somehow miraculously um I got in um and just yeah changed my life so 30 rock very indirectly and i've said very little about the show um completely changed my life and i you know i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing now if it hadn't been for tina fey and uh, and that show and is that because you look at their writers from the thing they're not very strong i could easily sort of get into there and make it my own um I don't know if I was thinking like that. I think I thought I can be in charge of people like that. Yeah. I think I... I, So you're more identified with the Tina Fey character than Judah Friedlander, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved loved that she was pedantic and sort of mean and sour um, and and that she was in charge in her professional life but you know a slob in her personal life and completely sexless. I just loved seeing a character like that on TV who you know, who wasn't your stereotypical sort of, I guess, pretty girl, that Tina Fey's gorgeous, but, you know, your pretty girl leads who's there as a foil for the male, male, male characters. She was something, she was a force of nature in herself. And in the pilot episode, the first scene is um, someone cutting in line to, to buy hot dogs and making their own line. So she buys all the hot dogs um, to punish him and just has to then get rid of them. And I identified so strongly with that sort of pedantic, rule-following, grumpy, you know, I guess the New Yorker spirit that I just instantly fell in love with the character. She's like a gentler version of Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm, isn't she? She's, Whereas he's a bit more obnoxious with his pedantry. I think hers is funnier. Hers is definitely funnier. I mean, I, I, Curb Your Enthusiasm was also very nearly on this list, but again... It, you know, I'm I'm not that interested in sort of watching someone blundering around offending people right now just because of the state of the world. I think yeah. it's it's less appealing to me. Although Larry David is, you know, I think will always be 
an influence. Um, but for me, it was it, it was also she was she was just herself. You know, she had childlike qualities. She, you know, at the end of the day, everyone took her seriously. She was in charge, and without her, things fell apart. And I liked seeing someone who was truly competent but still flawed. My partner at the time saw one. Of, I, I love Thirty Rock and seen them all. Um, and my partner at the time saw one of the episodes with me and said, "They're all just caricatures. I can't get on board with this because they're caricatures." But again, like we were saying with friends, I think that that sort of works mm. in its favour in that you know how these people are going to react. Yeah, but also it had its own distinct tone. You know, she really brought her her own character to it. So I don't I don't agree that Liz Lemon is a caricature, for example. You, you know, I, she when she's on when someone cries in front of her, she goes, "Oh no, don't be cry." You know, everything mm-hmm. she says is it comes from her. It's really you know the essence of her character shines through in everything she does. So I think, and also, I think you know some of them really are caricatures. Jenna Maroney is a caricature, you know, yeah. of course. But when you watch, you know, for example, there there are so many Easter eggs that you don't get until a second watch, like Kenneth being immortal, and there's so much of it that's just wacky and out there and weird that you don't, that, you know, I think just comes from the the brains of Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, just this, you, you know, absurdity that I absolutely love about the show. And oh. I think in ways it hasn't aged very well as well. Um, there, are, there are things that are problematic, but overall, you know, it's still it's still a comfortable and enjoyable rewatch. And who are your favourite few characters? Um, Tina Fey aside. <laughs> Um, well, obviously Liz Lemon, but her side, um, Liz and Jack, um, I think I love the dynamic. Um, I love that they never go there romantically or, um, conversely to me enjoying a good romance. I enjoy their anti-romance. But are you still rooting for them regardless? Yeah, of course. Like you... in that you want them to get together even though you don't want them to get together? Oh no, I never wanted them to get together. I, I, you know, she, it's a father-daughter dynamic, I think. Yes. Oh Yeah. For me, I I can't I don't see any romantic tension there. Um, you know, I I enjoy I enjoyed her romantic pursuits because they were they were relatable. There's one scene where she tries to flirt and she's just horribly mean, um, and that was that was basically my entire sort of romantic endeavours before I got married. Somehow, um, was just trying to flirt and it coming off really horrible. You know, she's playing dodgeball with a cute guy and. Um, she completely misses the point as a singles dodgeball event and she just hits him really hard um, to she's because she's playing the game and that's how she does things um, and I love that I love that she won't take her socks off in bed and just all of it she's she's brilliant she's got insecurities and she's she's very very real and even though she's a caricature in a way she's very real and um, Tina Fey sort of fell out of the SNL behemoth Mm. Um, and the amount of things that that program has spawned, and the amount of people that have come through that program, um, do you think that Mass Report is maybe sort of something that might equate on this side in terms of its immediacy and its sort of? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Um, it, you know, I, I think it's SNL is an institution that's been around for a very long time, and I think it's part of a wider ecosystem in the states. They have Second City um, and improv sort of troops, and a lot of it is based around being a writer performer. Um, which um, you know, if you're if you're a purist writer, it's it's a bit different. 
Um, we don't have any, any equivalent really over here, do we? But in terms of up we, to the moment satire, I suppose. We don't... We, I don't think we do have an equivalent here. I think we have... I think it's, it's just a very different industry here. I think things things are perhaps a little more elitist here. You have, um, you know, the Cambridge Footlights, a lot of people coming out of that. Um, and I've actually noticed that the NFTS course is quite recent, but the course that I did, there are a lot of people who've come out of that who've gone on to do really big things. Um, you know, gone on to be BBC contract writers and have their own sitcoms and things that are really sort of big and impressive. So there are things, but I, I don't think there's anything in the UK that's quite comparable and that you know, second city classes are not a huge outlay necessarily and you can just work your way up and then work your way into an improv troupe and then, and then, um, and then sort of, I guess the cream of the crop goes on to SNL and things like that. And so there's a lot more opportunity and I think there's more opportunity for diverse writers rooms in late night, you know, shows, you've got Seth Meyers and you've, you've got Trevor Noah, um, and shows like, you know, hosts like that. Um, we have a lot less of that. Um, I think the Match Report is great and I would love to, you know, I think it's launched a lot of careers. Rachel Paris is a superstar now. Um, you know, I, I, I hope it becomes an institution in a similar way. I think it's a little bit different just because it's not, it's not straight up sketch in that way, in the same way. Um, it's sort of a mixture of, of different things. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. But I think, I think in order for that to, things like that to be career launches, you sort of need the underpinning ecosystem of, you know, opportunity and quite diverse and equal opportunity. Um, and right now there's not a lot of that. And actually I'm working at the moment on sort of trying to um, create an entry level comedy writing competition just to get people in the industry and on the radar because there's just not a lot at the moment that, that brings people in that, that doesn't cost an arm and a leg or doesn't require you to have some sort of highbrow elitist education. And how there's been a lot said recently about um, writers' rooms in a negative sort of sense, but thinking positively, how did you find writers? How do they work? What's the dynamic of a writers' room? Um, so there's not really, I mean, there are a few shows, really a few shows here that have, you know, maybe a handful of five or six writers in terms of narrative shows. Um, like Horrible History has a writer's room, I believe, and I think Trolleyed has a writer's room, although I'm not, not 100% sure on that. Um, so most of the writer's rooms here are on things like topical shows. Um, and um, my experience has been really enjoyable. I really like being in rooms, and I think that's partly because I'm, you know, I'm autistic and I live quite far out of town, so I can be a little bit isolated. And the opportunity to come in and sort of knock ideas about with funny people is, is really great for me. Um, you know, any room depends on the atmosphere and the people. And I think everyone that I've come across so far has been very lovely. You know, I, I have heard horror stories from other people. Um, it hasn't been my experience so far. And I've been in a couple of rooms that have been all female rooms, which have been great. Um, you know, just sort of looking around being like, oh, there are no men. Like, who's going to repeat our, our ideas more loudly and pretend it was theirs? <laughs> it's awesome. Um, but yeah, for, for me, being a room is quite a joyous sort of thing. I feel I feel most alive and as a writer and comfortable when I'm developing ideas with other people. And Sarah Morgan, um, she's a brilliant comedy writer, um, very, very experienced. She wrote an article for The Guardian in the last few days um, 
about writers' rooms. And I think the thing that she said about a really great room is there's an atmosphere of sort of that improv ethos, which is probably why American shows are so successful. Is it's not no, that's shit. It's yes and. Yeah. Um, and. and I think you know they, that's when I enjoy being in a room the most when there are more experienced writers on hand to sort of help you develop your ideas and that makes you a better writer too so how from someone complete outsider how do they how does it work so you you go into writer's room for your your day of work are you how many uh, minutes or episodes are you expected to write in a day and how how do the ideas well it depends on the show and it depends what you've been commissioned to write so sort of when you're starting out um as i guess i I still am in in many ways you might start on a show with like a minute or two commission um and um and there'll be a room for you know i guess varying numbers of writers depending on the show dead ringers has a lot of writers um you know they have uh, they have three i said i guess three head writers three writers who write a large bulk of the show and then they have people on different commissions and then they have people sending stuff in that's non-commissioned and so there's a lot of competition um so you might be commissioned for a minute and then never get anything on the show all season you might be commissioned for a minute and then completely exceed your commission and get paid for that anyway which is great um so commission's really like the minimum that you'll be paid for it regardless of whether or not you achieve it um which is sort of a security i guess um and but you know so on a show like dead ringers will come into the room um we'll knock some ideas around, we'll, we'll pitch, and then the producer, Bill, will say yes or no to ideas, or and we'll go away and write them, and then, you know, may, if we're lucky, some of what we write, write might make it into the show. But, you know, it's, there's so many talented writers, and it's so fiercely competitive that you just sort of have to, I think, just treat it like, like it's just fun, and it is, um, yeah. and not, not try not to take it too seriously or take any rejections to heart, because it's, you know, it's such a competitive field um and there might be a show like the news quiz um where you come in uh, you actually come in for proper days of writing and you spend the day in the room with writers and you know you'll you'll be given sort of themes and you just all go away and write your own jokes and then you come back in put them all in a document and go through them with the host and stuff so every show works differently and there's there's no the thing is with the uk comedy industry is pretty much everyone is freelance there are very few proper jobs you know comedy jobs um and so every show has its own dynamic and works differently um and you just have to sort of i guess adapt as you arrive fascinating yeah like no no linear career path it's not like you start as a junior comedy writer at the bbc and then then you work your way up that's it doesn't work like that you have to constantly sort of be chasing work and and reminding people you exist and socializing and things that don't necessarily come easy to an autistic person, but yes, yeah, it's, it's part of the game. How do you find it harder as an autistic person? Um, I think it's a lot of the socialising is done sort of at the pub um, and I, I have quite limited energy. Um, so a big thing about being autistic is that little things that you do that are easy for other people might be harder for you or consume more energy. So there's a sort of, we refer to it colloquially as using up spoons. So you have a certain amount of spoons in the drawer at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, and um, they get knocked out of your drawer faster than, say, a neurotypical person who wouldn't think twice about, you know, maybe driving to the supermarket. But for me, that's an expedition. Um, and so, you know, by the time I've been in a writer's room all day and then I've been in a recording, 
I'm I'm gone. The last thing I want to do is go to the pub and chat to people. I just want to go home. And also, you know, I think there's... I don't like to call it autistic social difficulties. I think there's an, a language barrier sometimes between autistic people and neurotypical people where, you know, perhaps we can offend without meaning to or people can misunderstand us. And so socialising can cause more anxiety for people like me than... I mean, you know, I guess there are people with social anxiety too, of course, but... There, there are a lot of factors at play that make it more difficult to sort of stay relevant and stay visible in the industry, which is, I guess, why Twitter's been really useful for me. And also, I I tend to get around it by getting to know people one-on-one. So I'll if I get along with someone, I'll just invite them for a coffee. And, you know, I, I guess I develop more intense and meaningful relationships with people that way. Um, you know, nobody's thinking Sarah's the life and soul of the party, well, let's let's invite her out clubbing, but um, it, you know, people do think of me and remember me for things, which is, it's nice that there there is another way in, but it's you just have to sort of find your own route with it. And you're, you've um, only been diagnosed relatively recently, so has yeah. that affected how you think of yourself, or um, has it helped to put a label on things, or was it yeah, absolutely. Because I think before, what I thought was there were a lot of disparate little things that I found difficult or, you know, struggled with. Like, just small things. Like, I'm very, very sensitive. Um, obviously, can't see because this is a podcast, but we're in my living room right now and it's a cave. You know, it's just lit with fairy lights. Everything's very low lighting. Everything's very quiet. Um, and, you know, even going outside in the sunshine, you know, I'd go out with friends and my eyes would be streaming even with sunglasses on and I'd be trying to keep up with people and to be having these immense sensory difficulties or we'd be sitting in a cafe and there'd be background noise and I just wouldn't be able to follow what anyone was saying and I'd be exhausted in 10 minutes and not knowing why that was the case you just sort of feel like a drama queen or like everyone has these difficulties but you're not managing them as well and so I think putting putting a label on it so to speak helped me to understand why this stuff is happening and to uh, to not put myself in situations where I'm going to sort of unnecessarily cause myself harm and to just to find ways around things. And I think what's interesting was when I was diagnosed, a lot of people were like, oh, I hope you don't start using this as an excuse. It's like, no, I, you know, this is, fi- finally there's a reason. It's not, it's not an excuse. I've always struggled, but now I can say no and I can, I feel validated in saying no um, and sort of putting my needs first. Um, and, I, and I guess I, I have, you know, I... I don't know, um, distance myself from people who aren't particularly understanding about that. Um, and ha- I have stronger relationships with people who are understanding about it. And I know my limitations as well. You know, I was invited to apply for a job that's absolutely wonderful, but would have set my sensory difficulties off. And I would have been, I think I would have found it quite exhausting. And a year ago, I might have applied and gone, oh, I'll deal with it when I get there. And then really found it difficult when I was there and, and, and regretted it and this time I, I you know I made a decision just to say no this 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 one isn't for me this this isn't the right job for me you know just sort of knowing knowing what it is that causes the difficulties I think it's really important so yeah it's, it's been that's been quite life-changing for me too um and and also just I, I think it's enabled me to be myself more and to be more honest about things and to be less hard on myself for things you know not beating myself up for not being able to do everything that everyone else can do all of the time and also recognising that there are things I can do that other people can't and there's strengths to being autistic as well. Of course, yes. We've 
gone down two massive we have here, this we? is going to be a long episode but please feel free to edit um that was 30 rock um <laughs> was 30 but we didn't rock. talk much about 30 rock it's, it's a good show watch it absolutely <laughs> fascinating so number six on the list number six is Shit's creek um which i nearly missed entirely um but um when i, I wasn't very well a friend sort of suggested it based on like he's he's like my own personal sort of Netflix recommendations. Like I see you've enjoyed the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and other related programs. Perhaps you would like to watch Shit's Creek. Um, so it's a show. It's a Canadian show um, by father and son duo. So Eugene Levy, Levy or Levy? Is oh, it? I'd go Levy. Is it Levy? I don't know if that's. I've only ever seen it written. Incredibly. Well, Daniel Levy is the Tottenham uh, ruler. But whether they would say say it differently in Canada, I don't know. I'd go Levy. I think they're going to kick me out of Judaism. <laughs> <laughs> well, whoever hears this, I'm out. Um, well, let's go with Levy. And if I'm wrong, I'm terribly sorry. Um, so it's Dan and Eugene Levy. Um, Dan is the son. Eugene is Eugene is Eugene Levy. Um, and they created this show about a very wealthy family who lose all their money in some sort of tax scandal. Uh, and one of their remaining assets is a town that um, that the father bought for the son as a joke called Shit's Creek. Um, and they have to go and live there because it's one of the only things that they have left. Um, and it's just, you know, sort of a, it's a Canadian show. It's sort of a rednecky town, um, very, very small town. Um, they have to live in a creaky old motel. Um, and it's one of those shows that is just a constant surprise and delight uh, I'm absolutely charmed and in love with it. When I first watched it, I just thought these characters are so unlikable. How am I going to watch a season of this? But I was told to stick with it. And the character development on that show is just incredible. It's out of this world. It's just a masterclass in character development. You know, they start out these sort of spoilt brats with very few redeeming qualities. Um, and they're, they're funny, of course, but it, you know they are very caricaturish. And the way that they develop these characters, giving them so much heart and maturity, but without ever betraying the essence of the characters or their flaws um, or forgetting sort of where they came from in, the, in sort of in a, an inverted way. You know, you say, don't forget where you came from when you came from poverty and, and, and become wealthy. But this is sort of the other way around. Um, it's this show is just worth it just to listen to Catherine O'Hara's bizarre accent. She plays a sort of faded, retired actress who um, is a sort of soap actress. Really, She plays it really big and she has this wonderful affected ac- accent, which I won't even try to do because I won't do it justice. Um, but it's it's just sublime. Um, and also the one of the key love stories is an LGBT love story and the representation is so positive. And Dan Levy actually said that one of the big reasons, because there's it's a small town, but there's no homophobia, which is really interesting. And there's there's a central love story um, that you know in a small town would would probably bring up its own challenges. Um, but for him, he wanted to answer the question: What would it look like if we lived in a world without bigotry? You know, if they if people were just allowed to love each other, and that wasn't that wasn't an obstacle. That wasn't one of the central just just that sweep that out of the way for a minute and just see what an LGBT love story looks like. And I, that. I think was gorgeous and I'm so invested in the couples on the show and so invested in the characters and their development and it's you know I've had moments where I've welled up and that was another thing that I wrote down on my list of things that 
that these shows had in common was uh, they have to make me cry as well as make me laugh. <laughs> um, you know, I have to really feel the emotion of it. And this show ticks every box for me. And it, it's incredibly funny. It's really, really very funny. And again, it's one that sort of got a real high hit rate. They're into five series, 66 episodes already. And it only started in 2015. Well, actually, the next series is the last one. The oh, next season. Yeah. Um, they, I think they're going out on a high... Which is, I actually, actually, am, you know, I have mixed feelings because I could watch these people forever. But also, I think they've developed the characters to the point where I, I would rather see them just get their happy endings than have them sort of regress the characters or put unnecessary obstacles in their way that don't feel true to the heart of the show. With you know, we've watched these characters come so far, um, and it feels so earned. Um, when the characters really win, it feels so earned and you're really rooting for them. I don't really want to see see them sort of desperately try to rip their happiness apart just to, to keep the show going. I, I, want, I, I think almost I, I appreciate them going out on a high and ending it while, while everyone's still happy and developing in the right way. I'm only halfway through season one. Uh, from the way you're talking, it sounds like they might be building their way back up to their former glory. Is that the case? I don't know about their former glory. I think the message of the show is almost that the wealth just wasn't the important bit. It, right. They what What's amazing for me about the show is watching particularly um, David and Alexis, watching them achieve as humans um, in their own small ways. They're, they they become very empowered by by necessity and while they were quite pampered and didn't know how to do anything they really they really learn and they they scrap and they and they graft in a way that but again without ever betraying the essence of the characters alexis is still spoiled in her way but she softens and and david is still fussy and picky and you know neurotic but he learns a work ethic and you know it's it's really gratifying to watch it's not it's not about them scrambling to get their wealth back so much as making something of themselves and the lives that they have and we were talking previously about uh strong improvisation um surrounding sort of the background mm. of um the 30 rock protagonist or the 30 rock um geniuses but eugene eugene levy and Catherine o'hara have got very strong links to christopher guest yeah and some of those awesome films um i don't think they were around for spinal tap were they but they were there for mighty wind and best in show well they're, they're a classic duo i think the chemistry between them comes across in in schitt's creek like you know they feel like an old married couple for a reason yeah you you believe it you buy it because of their background but you know eugene levy very much of this is like a straight man and actually he plays it almost in a 50s sitcom patriarchal way you know, he has catchphrases like son of a bitch and things that are really quite, they feel a bit hammy when you watch them at first and then they, they it becomes very lovable. But Catherine O'Hara, I think, I, I, you know, I, I imagine a lot of that accent is improvised in the way she says bebe and stuff. You know, it's, it's really affected and re- you, you sort of, you're half watching just to see how she's going to say stuff. Yes. And do you know where you, you would like the series to go for the final one. Have you sort of got a an I, ideal? I, I just want everyone to be smushed together and happy. That's just smush them all together. That's <laughs> that's where I want it to go. Smushing. Yeah. <laughs> Next on your list. 
next on my list is parks and recreation. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I became brainwashed by Tina Fey um, and then Amy Poehler. But it was really Amy Poehler's book, um, Yes Please, that convinced me that I could be a comedy writer ultimately because she is such a soppy, big-hearted soul. Um, and I, I just, I, I, that's what I love so much about Parks and Rec is the massive heart that she puts into the show. The first season, I think, is quite notoriously hard going. I mean, it's not it's it's not bad. It's it's perfectly watchable, but it it becomes something else. I think around season two, and then with the introduction of Adam Scott um, as Ben, um, I, I think really comes into its own around the end of season two, beginning of season three, where it becomes a must watch rather than just a a passing watch. Um, it's again one of those shows that makes me laugh and cry um and i think it's she just isn't afraid to be saccharine and soppy and just puts so much of her soul into this very very competent earnest well-meaning character who you know she doesn't have to be a, a ditz or a klutz or anything else she is she is just fiercely competent and ambitious and unapolog unapologetically so um and just you know almost su leslie nope is almost superhuman in this and in, in her abilities in in her energy um and she's a tour de force and watching her grow into herself and watching her fall in love and watching her um sort of win week on week and lose big as well they don't they're not afraid to make her really lose um you know she gets what she wants and then it's taken away and that's absolutely devastating she becomes um She's elected to city council and then she's recalled by uh, sort of, I guess, it's interesting because it reflects the modern era in a way that she's really trying to do right by people and really trying to, I guess, promote the right messages in society and, and push through laws that will help people. And at every turn, she's thwarted by other people's stupidity um, and people acting against their best interests. And, you know, that... I think that's quite cathartic to watch as much as it's frustrating. Um, but yeah, I love the show. Um, it, it has me absolutely blubbing at points. Um, and yeah, it gets quite schmaltzy, but I love schmaltz and I'm totally on board with that. And there was such a, an ensemble cast as well. Mm. So Aziz Ansari and um, Nick Offerman's fabulous as a boss, isn't he? Nick Offerman's amazing, and I love that they have a character like that who isn't a massive bigot as well. Like that never comes into yes. it. You would think with his sort of libertarian politics that maybe, but he's at no point does he behave like that, and that that's satisfying to watch too. Um, and I love his relationship with Leslie. Again, I love that it's never romantic. Um, I love that it's that there's a sort of parental dynamic there. Um, but she, she, again, she doesn't really need parenting. Um, and I, I adore how their relationship develops. Um, one of the episodes that makes me cry, well, the, two of the episodes that make me cry the most, are the, the one where she, um, she gives it, she, her thoughtful gifts for Ron are just something else. Um, she gives him, um, a steak dinner and his favorite movie for his birthday and for him to watch it uninterrupted. Um, and when they go to the UK, she sends him on a distillery tour in Scotland and gives him a poem to read on the cliffside. And it's, that's that moment gets me every time. So 
I, I I love that he's softened by her thoughtfulness and that she's tempered by his grumpiness. Um, it works beautifully for me. And then who who would your favourite character be in that series? Oh, it's, it's always Leslie Nope. I think I think Leslie Nope is who I would be if I didn't have energy issues or who I'd want to be. Um, or maybe who I was when I was younger, so, sort of just able to be all things to all people and really genuinely cares about people and wants to help people and wants to make the world a better place. And it's really hard not to not to adore that. She's got a sort of very similar sort of trajectory to Liz Lemon in a way, hasn't she? They're both, both sort of pulling everything together and being the hub of everything. And as you say, sort of being all things to all people. Yeah. I think so. I think it's more extreme with Leslie Note because I think she does it in, on an interpersonal level as well as a professional level. Um, and I think she's sort of she's an overachiever in a totally different way. And the way I think her talent is recognised in a different way. Um, and she's headhunted for for much bigger things. And you know, it's it's not will she be a success, but it's what success will she be? And that's beautiful to watch. Um, a lot of people have problems with the sort of everyone gets their fantasy ridiculous happy ending finale um i loved it uh, and um you, you know it was again pure fantasy like completely unrealistic but i i absolutely was here for that as well um just yeah give me a bit of schmaltz any day i'm so glad that they were brave enough at the end of series one say oh hang on this is a bit american office we need mm. to listen to the feedback and sort of change direction slightly and as you say i think it really grew as a result of yeah and it kills me sick because i love amy perla so much and like i know that she hates criticism of the first series um the first se- we say series here um it's obviously in america season uh but you know your baby used to be ugly i think is what she <laughs> says about it like um but um yeah i think you know i don't think the first season was even bad i just think that it it wasn't what the show was going to become which was exceptional um and and that's that's okay i'm really glad that it was given the opportunity to grow into what it became because if it had been cancelled after one season then we would never have had parks and rec what's next on the list next on the list is crazy ex-girlfriend um so yeah i relate hard to this show for a number of reasons um it's it sort of, again, takes that genre that I love, the whole romantic comedy thing, and just completely turns it on its head. Um, so for people who haven't seen it, it's a show about a very successful lawyer in New York City, female, Jewish, about my age, uh, funnily enough, really self-centred viewer, um, who bumps into her ex-boyfriend from summer camp and spontaneously decides to uproot her whole life and move to West Covina in California, which is uh, two hours from the beach or four in traffic, um, and be with him. Uh, obviously, he has a, a life and a girlfriend in West Covina, um, and she sets about trying to dismantle that and ingratiate herself into her life with the help of her colleague, Paula. Um, it's a musical comedy, which I, again, I, I love musicals, um, and the, it this uses the songs to brilliant effect and it's really well done um but you know it sort of i guess unpacks rom-com tropes and themes and shows how unhealthy they are and actually really what it is is a show about mental health um and mental illness and we see her journey through that um you know what she thinks she wants versus what she needs um and 
eventually a diagnosis, which and some very very harrowing, very difficult to watch um, scenes. Um, so, yeah, it's again one of those shows that that is deeply emotional and makes you cry. Um, there are some songs that I think you know. I, I have periods of depression and it's their songs that I come back to again and again because they, they're sort of like a hand in the dark. And what I've noticed about the fandom of the show is it's it's a lot of people who feel less alone because of it. And so I think it's, it's a really groundbreaking and important show. Um, and it's also really, really funny. And uh, that's why it's on the list. And the songs that help you through depression, are they about being depressed or are they about the cheerier things in life what um so she, she has a couple of uh, she has a few songs about depression but there are a few that really sort of strike a chord um there's you stupid bitch um which is a song about self-loathing which i think a lot of people relate to really hard um there's the darkness um which is about you know her her love her you know her longest love is depression she calls him tyler um <laughs> But it's it's always funny. It's always undercut with something funny that sort of you know you'll be bawling your eyes out and then suddenly laughing. It's absolutely sublime. And um, and the song called Diagnosis about her, you know, just finally she's going to get an answer. And I think that was that was quite an important song to me when I was going through my autism diagnosis. And um, I went to see her live uh, a few weeks ago, and her energy and charisma um on stage and the lyrics she's just a genius um it's almost insulting I, I hate her a little bit I love her but yeah so was she just playing what sort of show was it just um playing the songs from the show or pretty much yeah um songs from the show and some other songs that she did um before she was famous because she was she was a youtube star before she was on crazy ex-girlfriend and have you ever done anything crazy as an ex-girlfriend <laughs> Oh wow! Uh, uh, probably yeah, not not suitable for podcasts, but definitely. I th- I, th- I don't think I'm I don't think I'm a vengeful person um, particularly, and I think that that formed a bit. You know, she spo- a spoiler. She's eventually diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which I think exhibits a different set of behaviours to say autism, where I'll just sort of quietly go away. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it 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 appeals to sort of she one of the first things she said is you know that she's that she's dramatic and weird or that her ex-boyfriend when he breaks up with her calls her dramatic and weird and she shouts I'm not dramatic I'm not dramatic and in that moment I think I've never related so hard to Mm -hmm. a character um just screaming across the car park that she's not dramatic um so I guess it's less about her actions and just more about her emotions and how upfront she is and it's such a progressive show uh it's such a switched on show um you know they have the sexy getting ready song where um you know they they show the effort that women go to like to to get ready for a date and they're like now let's see how the guys do it and they just have mm. a guy asleep on a couch um you know they they have they have a moment where they they have a rapper surrounded by sexy women and he's horrified by what he's seen they have to go through to get ready for him and you see him at the end phoning all his ex-girlfriends and ex-dancers and apologizing to them it's so it's it's very zeitgeisty and like dare i say woke um and that makes it a comfortable watch because you're not sort of cringing every five seconds at the bad gay jokes and things so it's 
yeah, it's it's very much sort of of its time and I think a little bit ahead of its time. Um, and very, very Jewish, which I enjoy as well. She really brings that into it. It's ticked that box for you. It has. <laughs> it's, it's, the title takes on a whole different sort of connotation and when she's had this diagnosis, mm-hmm. it almost sort of flips it on its head and makes you sort of more aware that it's not an appropriate sort of label to give someone, is it? No, um, and I think I think she addresses that. You know, it's it's hers. It's her label to give herself. It's her self-loathing. It's her it's her assessment of herself. It's other people's perspective of her, and it feels it feels in a way like a, a reclaiming um, and and an empowerment for for me anyway. Um, you know, someone someone says to her, "You're crazy," and she gives them a little bit. You know, and and she's okay with that. She's she's comfortable with. She she just takes it back. Um, so uh, yeah, I I think it's named as such provocatively because it's it's. It, I mean, she addresses that in the opening titles of the first season with the the song that they sing. She's a crazy ex girlfriend. You know, that's a sexist term. She she never lets anything like that fly unchallenged, yeah. and I think that's that's why it's so earned. Um, next on the list. Next on the list is a marathon. Um, the Good Place. Uh, so The Good Place is a Netflix original show about um, a woman who dies and goes to heaven. I won't. I'm, I'm actually not going to say anything spoilery about this show because it, it's. It, I just desperately do not want to destroy people's enjoyment of it, and a lot of that isn't the twists and turns. But she dies and she goes to heaven, um, a place called The Good Place, and very quickly realizes that there's been a mistake and she's not supposed to be there. Um, so that's Eleanor Shellstrop and she um, teams up with someone who is meant to be her soulmate in heaven but obviously it's, it's all she's not meant to be there so he's not really um, uh, a man called Chidi Anagonye um, who is a ethics um, a professor of ethics and morality or something so I'm, people are going to correct me on this and get very angry with me um, and uh, ethics and philosophy some, he's, anyway he's very ethical and he is going to teach her how to be a good person and that's the premise of the show um, it's one of the best written shows I've ever seen um, it is just so dense it's packed with jokes you have to watch it about three times to catch everything and I think even then it's you know it, it's there's so much of it and it's so fast paced um, if we're talking about character, every single line is in character. Every single joke is perfectly in character. Um, and that's really exemplified by one episode, which again, I won't spoil anything, but there's an episode with one character playing all the characters at one point. And it's partly down to the performance, but also the writing that you can tell exactly which character is speaking, even though it's being delivered by the same person. So yeah, it's just beautifully written amazing use of puns um you can just tell the writers are having so much fun with it you know that like lists of things that get you into the bad place or the good place um uh you know you can you can almost hear the writers room sitting and making each other laugh and making these lists uh it's a show that makes me want to try harder as a writer um the cast is great um the it's 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 sort of aesthetically really pleasing to watch it just ticks every box for me it's it's a sublime piece of work. Um, I saw the first episode and thought, this is rubbish, and stopped watching it. And thankfully, my friend said, no, no, you're wrong. Go back and mm. see it through. And by maybe the third or fourth episode, I was like, yeah, I was wrong. And yeah. it 
it is a real tour de force, isn't it? It's, uh, I sort of feel like we need to get a bit spoilery. Oh, I don't know. All I say, I was so reluctant because I just, I think, I just don't want to take that moment away when okay. that first big twist happens and, and you go, what? You know, I don't want to take that what moment from someone because I think it's so important. But what I will say is the storytelling is a huge aspect of the show. You never know where they're going with something and you think, oh, you know, how are they going to get out of this one? And then they do. Um, and they do it, they do it with, I mean, it's just so impressive um again it just makes me feel like a shallow husk of a writer just an empty shell um but it's it's every episode ends with a cliffhanger that makes you want to watch the next episode which is a lot of fun and addictive and a bit dangerous so you know clear your weekend if you're going to watch it and because it's netflix it's so easy to watch the next episode because while you're in and in whether you should go to the toilet or take the Dog for a walk. Just the next episode's you. played. Yeah. Decision's taken away from you. Um, this also only has one more season left on it, apparently. What? No! Spo- this is news to alert. me! Oh, no! Um, I'm really sad That's. Oh, I mean, that makes sense as well, because, again, I think... I don't know how much further they could go with it without Shark jumping. Yeah. It, it, They've teetered, haven't they? Like, at the start of maybe series... I can't remember, either series two or series... I was thinking, oh, have they have they blown it? But... Nope. No. No, they've never blown it. They know exactly what they're doing. It's... Uh, yeah, it's it's sublime. It just is so, so, so good. I, I, I know... I know this are, these are very creative adjectives. Um, that's why I don't write for The Good Place. Just uh, just go and watch it. Just that You won't be sorry that you watched The Good Place. You're not going to lie on your deathbed and be like, why did I waste my time? No, watch it. It's, um, and especially if you're a writer, watch it. Um, then spend a week in bed feeling like you never want to write anything again and then watch it again um, and make notes because it's amazing. And now we're definitely going to get spoilery. So if you don't want anything ruined, then flick ahead. Uh, if you go to the blog you'll be able to see the time code that you need to flick ahead to. Um, Sarah, you have been made a writer on The Good Place. Where are you going to take this final series? I, oh, this is, I'm almost scared to say because I think like no one will ever hire me again. Um, I would have, I would have Eleanor and Chidi genuinely being soulmates and the whole thing having been a test um, throughout um, with everyone sort of I guess all the people in the good place in on it um in order to get into the good place which is not as hard to get into as they make it out I think it's all, it's all a test of their souls that's yeah. what I hope but I I mean also I don't hope that they do that I hope that they do something much more brilliant and surprising than something I can think of um with my feeble puny brain because they pull the rug and then they pull it again mm-hmm. and then they pull it again and there can't be many rugs left for them to pull no. can there I, I mean, I, I, I would like to see this as some sort of soulmate test or some sort of good place test. That I say I would like to, again, I, I would like to be surprised, I think, by because so far I've not been able to predict anything. Yeah. Um, and that that is infuriating and satisfying for me. I think we can guarantee that we'll be surprised. hope so. No pressure. Next on the list. Next on the list, I think this might be this high up because I'm watching it at the moment. I'm re-watching it. Um, but also just because it's, I think it's such an important show, again, for um, strong female characters. So it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. 
um, which is not a sitcom. It's um, sort of, a, I guess, a comedy horror. Um, but it is so brilliantly funny. And I, I think I forgot how funny it was until I rewatched it, you know, the last few weeks. I've been binging it. And it, it is just hysterical. I've laughed out loud probably more often than in any mediocre sitcom I've watched. It's the characters are, again, perfection. And there's so many quotable lines. The tone of the show is fantastic. And again, it has that heart and pathos that makes you want to be part of the gang and want to inhabit that world. And even someone squeamish like me, I don't really like violent things. And I don't really like things that are dark. And it's, I, I, I guess I can tolerate it because I love the show so much. And, you know, I, I, I do find myself looking away a little bit because I'm seven years old. But I adore it. I think it's groundbreaking. Um, I think the female characters on it are second to none. Um, I don't think it's without its sort of problems in terms of how it's aged, but I, I also think it's aged spectacularly well um, in general for the most part. Um, and yeah, I, again, it gives me big writer envy, which is why it's on this list. I watch it and think I can never be clever enough to come up with that. Um, and, you know, I, I recently was working on a pitch for a sort of action-y show and really watching this just for a, a sense of tone and formula was so influential for me in developing that. Um, I actually um, met Joss Whedon once um, in incredibly embarrassing circumstances. And actually, he follows me on Twitter now. So wow. I, if if he listens to this, he's going to know this was me and it's going to be game over. <laughs> so, <laughs> I once worked at a university in their marketing events department, just um, part time uh, a few years ago. And we sometimes rented out the university for film shoots and so it's quite a grand looking place you probably drove past it on your way here i won't say where it is because i'm kind of telling everyone where i live but um anyway um they were filming one of the avengers movies there and everyone was really excited because chris hemsworth was out back being thor in the car park just there um I was excited because Joss Whedon was there and he's a writing hero. Um, it was, this was before I was a comedy writer and I just sort of wished to be a writer one day. Um, but um, we were not allowed anywhere near them or to speak to them and uh, for, for good reason, as it turned out. Um, and I, um, I don't know what happened to me that day. I, I'm in an industry where I have to meet a lot of sort of people that I admire and quite famous people and you can't fangirl people you have to just be quite cool and normal otherwise you know no one's going to hire you um and this was before I started my career so I had zero chill um I had to be escorted through the car park by security um and I was trying to get a glimpse of him um and just as I was leaving his car pulled up next to mine and he had the window down and Today, me would be like, leave him alone. He's just a person. Back then, me, I just lost my shit. Mm -hmm. I, my head went. I don't know what happened to me. I just, 
I, for some reason, I kept calling him Mr. Whedon. That's all I remember, really, is just of the this terrible blackout. Um, I, I was like, Mr. Whedon, Mr. Whedon, thank you so much for Buffy. I, I just, I love her so much, and I love the show, and he was so nice. He was so, so, so nice about it. Could not have been cooler. I, I mean, I was a step away from getting into his car. He was just this babbling, like, probably quite scary person yelling at him um through the car window and he was like that's so nice thank you so much and he was really lovely um and then i i I carried on my walk home thinking what have i done what have i done bright red and his car got stuck in traffic next to me so there he is just crawling along beside me (laughs) trying to hide my face wanting to you know for the earth to swallow me up and just die on the spot um and it was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life but I was like well at least I told him how much Buffy means to me and so now a few years later uh, I'm in that industry and we follow each other on Twitter and I've obviously never um, mentioned to him that I was the person who yelled alarming things at him through his car window it's um, probably standard for him it's probably a daily occurrence <laughs> it probably is but yeah um, if he listens to this he will almost definitely unfollow me on Twitter um i'm i'm much calmer now um and please um i I don't behave like that on set so please don't hesitate to hire me is the message but that's something that if you wrote it people would be like ah really stuck in traffic how convenient it was awful it was just it it was just on a junction he turned the corner and then there's traffic lights right there um and he just crawled along at the exact pace that i was walking window still open so what do you do does he put the window up that's mean do i (laughs) i just i didn't know what to do i just hid my face and ignored him um and it was it was terrible it was absolutely never meet your heroes not because they're not nice just because you'll blow it weren't even tempted to do the odd side eye every now and then just to check he was still there no i couldn't look at him I, i i think it was the most red i've ever been in my life yeah, it's completely inappropriate. If Joss is listening, I'm so, so, so sorry. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, I've watched the first couple of episodes in advance of this and never really got into it at the time. But friends of mine that were into it, and I can see why they were, and it's something I think I'll now pursue, having seen the first couple of episodes, um, were fiercely into it, mm. very passionate about it. Someone I used to work with put on um, a play, uh, well, she recreated in on the stage uh the episode that is a musical oh yeah that's a fantastic episode i filmed it for her so i've seen that episode a few times and it's great and the songs are really good yeah yeah and and also it comes at a really important narrative moment in the series and it's just it i mean it's controversial it divides opinion but i love it i love the angst like uh, coming just to that episode completely out of context the angst that buffy seems to be feeling at that point in time and she might be dead or might have died or something. I couldn't really ascertain. She had died and been brought back by her friends. And her well-meaning friends. Just seemed completely listless and like she was having a midlife crisis or something. And I thought that really worked. I liked the troubled nature that she had, despite the fact that she was here to save the world and kill all the vampires. Well, it's incredibly earned. Um, you know, at that point you are... Six series in, or this is blasphemous. Yes, six. Series uh, six, episode seven. Yeah, and um, and you've seen her go through these incredible trauma, like trauma, trauma, traumas, um, multiple traumatic situations. She's she's lost many many people in traumatic different ways, and 
when she died she was at peace and then you know she's she's sort of wrenched out of that state of rest and brought back by her well-meaning friends because i think they thought she was in hell um and she can't share with them that they've they've basically destroyed her life by bringing her back um but at that point you've been with this character so long you've been through so much with her um that it feels incredibly earned and you're right there with her and did you venture into the spin-off series angel do you know what and this is again blasphemous i never did and the reason for that um and i will rectify this very shortly at the end of this buffy binge because there's a lot of crossover and things that happen in episodes of angel that like huh um that there's sort of referenced in buffy that like i've missed something so i think you were sort of meant to watch them side by side um, I didn't watch Angel because I was so invested in Angel and Buffy. I was a teenager, you know. I was so invested in Angel and Buffy as a couple at that time that I couldn't bear. I, I carried on with her journey because the reason that Angel left Buffy was because if he ever has sex with her, he'll turn evil, effectively. Um, he'll, he loses his soul and he becomes uh, a, an evil killer. Um, and so he could never be happy with her or give her a future or have a proper loving relationship with her and obviously kids are out of the question because he's the undead um and i was very concerned that they would give him another romantic interest making the reasons for him leaving buffy redundant and putting me through all that for nothing i didn't want to watch him with anyone else i was just like my teenage heart was so broken by it and i was so indignant about it that i just couldn't watch him move on with his life without buffy like once he was gone he had to be gone he didn't exist <laughs> i was so upset with him uh, i think so it was almost an overinvestment in this dynamic that made me that stopped me from watching the, the spin-off show um even though i was completely in love with him um uh, which again is controversial um but um I, I would like to watch it now, I think. I think I can cope now with... I think I can cope. There's enough distance between. That... I mean, no, but I'll be okay. I'll be, I think, I, think with it, I'm, I can handle it better now. I've had real-world disappointments and heartbreaks, and I, I think I can watch someone else's. When I did watch the first episode, I was extremely excited to hear a word that I haven't heard uttered possibly on telly ever um, and certainly not in my life since I don't know the 80s the late 80s and that was skanky <laughs> Buffy called someone skanky and I'd forgotten that word even existed but it was one that we would use regularly wow as teens so that that has sold me I'm going to watch 144 episodes of that series based on that one word I think you just watch it for the delight of the writing that I mean there's moments the you know, an example of the humour um, is Giles has been captured by Angel who's turned evil and he's being tortured and one of the ways in which Angel and his and Drusilla and Spike torture him is they make him see a sort of image of his deceased girlfriend um, who he misses a lot, obviously, and... Um, they use that to manipulate him into into revealing information that's going to help them. Um, and Xander uh, somehow shows up to rescue Giles. Um, and Giles is sort of completely out of it at this point. He goes, no, 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 that, you know, they're, they're showing me things I want to see. They're manipulating me. You're not real. And Xander goes, then why would they show you me? Uh -huh. And he goes, 
good point and off they go and it's it's that it's in the even the most tragic terrifying horrifying moments the the human never leaves the show for a second i mean i think there are episodes where that's an exception for example um you know again spoiler um but where buffy's mum dies in a very human way um she it's a blood clot after a brain tumor um and she she is just found dead on the sofa and that that episode is so quiet and so subdued um and so so different from the rest of the series where they're quipping and fighting monsters it's 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 haunting and it's a horror in a different way because buffy can't kill a blood clot she can't do anything to save her mom um so there are moments where it really i think is reverent and and pays respect to the subject matter but you know even when the world's about to end they're still making jokes and it's it's that tension is constantly undercut and you just sort of as a viewer feel calmer calmer about it like everything's going to be okay even even in moments of high tension um because of the relationship between these people which i think is a work of genius so Sarah, as we close in on your number one, let's recap your top ten. At number ten is The Good Wife. At number nine, Friends. At number eight, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. At number seven, Thirty Rock. Number six, Schitt's Creek. Number five, Parks and Recreation. Number four, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Number three, The Good Place. Number two, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And at number one, oh no, we're going to pause before we get to number one, Sarah. There's been a new commission in town. It's for the best narrative comedy uh, ever to come out of the world. And you've been commissioned to write it and make it. Um, How's it going to look? Who's going to be in it? What's the subject going to be? First of all, um, I'm going to need a really big budget for a room of about 25 people. um, Because that's how you make the supercharged, amazing shows, I think. Unless you're Phoebe Waller-Bridge. in which case, I love you and also I hate you. Um, but, um, ooh, yeah, big, big, big writer's room, first of all. Um, and, oh, ooh. I feel like we've already touched on a few tropes that have come round. Yes. So I think 1950s has come up a few times. Yeah, well, it wouldn't necessarily be set in the 1950s, but I think it would have to be a very sort of aesthetically pleasing, brightly coloured, happy world um, a world that people want to inhabit. It'd have to have a lot of heart, a lot of moving moments. The writing would have to be dead on, really, really sharp, uh, gorgeous characters that you root for, um, and uh, just a romantic strand running through the series. That's what I would have. And also, I think we've had a few falls from grace. Uh, we've had strong female leads. Mm, definitely strong female leads. A hint of Jewish? There would be lots of Jewish in that. Like that. There'd be lots of Jewish in there, <laughs> sounding really convincingly Jewish now. Um, I, I've always wanted to write a Jewish musical um, comedy. So that that's something that I, I come back to every now and then, but it's not something anyone really wants to buy, unfortunately, for meeting with multiple um, producers. I've pitched it to everyone and it's always been a polite, any other ideas? Um, so, um, but if I was going to write the thing, that would be the thing. Well, I think you're pitching it in the wrong place, and I think Hollywood is more susceptible to Jews. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think. Um, well, I, I, I want a sort of narrative comedy set in Golders Green, um, 
I um, like kind of like a modern fiddler on the roof, which I, when I pitched it to my husband, he said fiddler on the tube, which sounds like a whole other show that I don't want to watch. Um, <laughs> it's really dodgy. Um, but that's, that's what it would be about. Um, and it would star uh, just, I, I would like a Frankenstein's monster hybrid of all of my favorite leading ladies that would, I would just cut them up and sew them all together and reanimate them. And that would be, that would be the the leading lady of my sitcom. You could have her as like a Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. I think we've just hit on a brand new thing. You... Frankenstein does sound Jewish. But to actually have it as a chop top sewn together type. Yeah, I mean that would never be acknowledged. This is these are this is a terrible terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> this is this might be why no one's buying my sitcom. I don't know. Well, the more the further we get into it, the more I like it. Um, but let's. Let's go to your number one. Top of the list is... The Simpsons. It's got to be The Simpsons. Um, It is a defining show for me um, in terms of my life um, and as a writer. Uh, Nothing comes close to it in any way, shape or form. It's what I watch when I need comfort. It's what I watch when I need to laugh. Um, It's what I've always watched. I can quote probably the early seasons off by heart um it's very annoying um because when i was growing up we didn't have a tv um we had a video player that wasn't hooked up to anything and my parents were kind of hippies so when we weren't using it they'd cover it up with a silk sheet and crystals not sure if that was so that like the tv didn't harm us with its tv rays or just because if we moved it they'd see that the crystals had moved um which seems more logical um (laughs) But um, my, I don't know how we got these tapes. I think maybe my brother might have taped them at a friend's house, but he'd come home with these like tapes of The Simpsons. And when my parents were out or when we were allowed to watch something, we'd just devour them. And really it became like an in-joke between me and my brother. It was sort of, my brother was a few years older and I you know, looked up to him and thought he was really funny. And um, I guess it was my way of engaging with his humor and guess, being part of his world and um you know as we it never diminished we still sometimes send each other simpsons quotes just out of context for no reason um it's a whole language in itself i think most of the references in my life are from the simpsons which is how i incorrectly thought that there was an actual streetcar named desire musical there is not <laughs> it's not a real musical um neither is planet of the apes uh, but I, I i cottoned on to that one um it's just, I don't think I would be who I am without The Simpsons. Um, it's everything. I think it's shaped my sense of humour and my, who I am in this life and my moral compass via Lisa. I think Lisa was like my idol growing up. I like to think I'm Lisa, but I'm Homer. <laughs> I was actually watching TV the other day. I was, I, I was ill um, and I was watching an episode where Homer was left at home. Um, and my husband had gone out to work because, you know, to earn a living as, as people do and left me alone ill and I was feeling really resentful that I was by myself and ill and there was a scene where Homer Homer was sort of grumbling about being left alone and how he'd starved to death and everyone would regret it and um, and be so sorry that they didn't take him to this barbecue and you know and I'll be laughing laughing from my grave (laughs) and I I sort of really related to him Um, but yeah it's it's just a show that's defined me as a human being Um, and I was extraordinarily lucky and this was the career highlight that I was saving until now um, a 
few years ago when I was co-editing a an online satirical women's magazine called Succubus, which is still going and run by the marvellous Kat Sadler, if you want to check that out. Um, it, that's a little plug for Kat. Um, I tweeted a couple of nights before New Year's Eve, a couple of years back, um, just tweet the first Simpsons quote that comes into your head uh, without thinking about it. And it went viral and... Um, and it was like it was a Twitter moment, and I wasn't I didn't really have that many followers on Twitter at that point, so it kind of I guess put me on the map. Weirdly, I got a lot of new followers, and a lot of them were Simpsons writers. They sort of clicked onto oh, my wow. profile and saw that I was a comedy writer, and um, in particular, a couple of them really enjoyed Succubus. Um, I and um, through that we sort of connected, and um, and became friendly and. We actually went to LA to have um, some meetings, Kat, uh, me and Kat together. Um, and while we were out there, they invited us to a Simpsons table read, which was just, I think, not just the highlight of my career, the highlight of my life. Yeah. Uh, better than meeting Larry. Sorry, Larry. It was just the most surreal, incredible day. Um, so we went to Fox and we sat around a table. Matt Groening was just sitting right in front of us and pretty much the entire cast just around a table just it was it was a sort of quite a Homer and Grandpa centric episode. So we're just watching Dan Castellaneta talk to himself in different voices for, you know, half an hour. Um, I, was, I think I was shaking the whole time. It was like a dream. It's like being inside a dream. Um, you know, because it's it's not just a show I like. It's it's it, you know something I think that's that's like I said has defined me. Um, and yeah, so so. That sort of, I guess, topped off my Simpsons fan- fandom. Not that it it's ever wavered, and now watching it is even more enjoyable because I see the names of people that I, you know, I consider at least friendly acquaintances, buddies, um, at the end of the episodes, and that's that's a really nice thrill as well. And we also um, we got a chance to meet some of the other sort of old school Simpsons writers who were doing Disenchantment and go to the Disenchantment offices and, and this was before the show came out on Netflix and so we saw a few sneak peeks of things and that was just amazing as well. Um, but just, you know, having chats with these people who've been involved in one of the, I mean, not one of the, probably the most successful TV show of all time, um, it was all inspiring and, I've, you know, I've been very lucky. I think if I died tomorrow, I'd... I've had uh, I've had a lot of good luck in my life, and that was probably the height of it. It's so massive, isn't it? It's been going since 1987 on the Tracy Ullman show, 1989 mm. as a show in its own right, 662 episodes, but it's even got its own Wikipedia, uh, not Wikipedia page, but Wikipedia site. And on mm. the site, 20,000 pages exist with 95,000 photos. It's just yeah. There's a lot to there's a lot to know. All those in jokes as well. All those little throwaways. Mm. How how many of the six hundred and sixty two episodes do you think you must have seen? Um, I'm I'm a little behind on the latest series, but I th- most of them. And uh, I, I get certainly seasons two to about ten or eleven. I will have seen hundreds of times, like just countless. T- I don't, I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen the early episodes. And the frustrating thing is now, if you want to watch them, you have to pay. There's, yeah. there's nowhere, nowhere streaming them because Amazon have bought the rights. It's worth it. It's worth the money. When I asked you to come on this podcast, one of your early ideas of what your t- top ten might be was Simpsons episodes. Mm. So, sort of quickly and 
briefly how did had you sort of structured that list uh no, I realised that it would be quite boring because they would just all be Simpsons. Sorry, there would be Lisa episodes. So pretty much would just be a Lisa fest um, because for me, the Lisa episodes are the ones with the biggest heart um, and they're the ones that make me ugly cry. Mm. Um, particularly, there, there are a few notable ones that definitely, definitely would have been on there. Lisa's Substitute um, is one where... Lisa sort of gets a crush on her substitute teacher and it's a it's a hybrid it's a crush but also he's a father figure and he compensates for Homer's terrible parenting and and it addresses Homer and Lisa's relationship as well um it oh it it just I can't even think about it without crying um and it's the infamous note that he gives her at the end I think it's Dustin Hoffman who does the voice Mr Bergstrom gives her the note at the end where she she doesn't know how she, he leaves because he's a substitute teacher and that's what they do and she feels abandoned and he gives her a note that says you are Lisa Simpson and that's that's I think one of the most beautiful moments in television history um Lisa's first word is one that I come back to again and again it was one of the first episodes I think I ever watched and so it's it's sort of a warm cocoon of an episode for me I absolutely love it um Mr Plough is a great episode i mean that i could go on and on i think i think with my top 10 with the simpsons i would have had real trouble narrowing it down and it would have been quite annoying and then also there would have been a lot of friends on my case going how could you have left out i think one i'd like to revisit would be the one where homer comes into the real world and it was all cgi i wonder if that that's a um treehouse of horror episode i think the graphics that seemed brilliant at the time might be a bit flaky now though if to watch it again under today's standards of CGI. Maybe, but I think, you know, it's all part of the charm yes, for true. me. Yes, Um, You know, the, the early animation is a lot rougher than it is now, but actually I enjoy that. I enjoy seeing it a bit rougher and, and how it was then. I, I sort of like watching low-res copies of it. It feels like watching it on my old TV. Yeah, uh, It's part of the nostalgia and part of the fun. And did you have an opinion of who you thought had shot Mr Burns? I mean, it's so long ago now that it's just canon that it was Maggie, isn't it? Um, mm. I don't, I don't remember particularly, sort of having any theories about the the mystery at the time. Um, but again, it's that. I mean, that's that's a great episode and one of the only ones that sort of spans two episodes. It's, I think it's it might be their only or one of their only to be continued. I think it was three. Epi- well, if you could include those, because I, I, I was dead into this at the time and. Uh, for a brief window, we had Sky TV as when I was a kid, and that happened during it. Um, so we watched the first episode, and we had a week to wait, and it was hideous, um, waiting to find out who it was. And then before the reveal episode, there was an extra episode that sort of um, was talking about the phenomenon that they'd created, and uh, they were talking to bookies, and it was crazy how this had caught the public consciousness mm. as much as it had, and mine in particular, because I was the perfect age. And it was just one of my TV highlights of my life, I think, thinking about it now. Well, it's, I think, I mean, the phenomenon of The Simpsons, first of all, nothing else looked like it. It was so attention-grabbing, you know, you, you changed channels and it was just yellow and bright and appealing, and, you know, you, you, you want to stop and look at it and see what it is. But also again it's a show with so much heart like 
the earlier episodes are, are so sad as well as being so funny. Um, they were just, the, again, I know I've used the word genius a lot and I think that's why I've picked so many of the shows on this list, but they were works of art, um, especially sort of, um, around, you know, around the golden era. Like, I think they were absolutely just not a line out of place, not a word out of place. Everything is hilarious. You you care about and root for the characters, no matter how terrible they are. Um, it's a very comfortable and safe world. Everything's a caricature of something. Everything's, um, you know, everything represents a part of society and lampoons a part of society and nothing's safe and no one's safe. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a classic family sitcom, but it was so intelligent as well i say was i mean it is but it's so it's it gave the audience so much credit um you know nothing about it was dumbed down if you didn't get a reference oh well you didn't get it it wasn't for you you weren't smart enough keep up yeah another one will be along in a few seconds yeah exactly um and there's still things like i rewatch as an adult and i've watched these hundreds of times and i'll still find something new in it and be like oh i get it um years later you know because you when you watch something as a child, you get into a comfortable rut of thinking of it a certain way. And so sort of rewatching it as a writer, as an adult, um, there's still things I pick up on that I go, I, I missed that completely at the time somehow. And do you have trouble switching off the writer switch? Yes. Do you watch thing, everything you watch? Yeah. It's ruined everything. If you want to um, ruin your love of comedy um, as, as a relaxing pastime, become a comedy writer because you will be watching stuff with such a critical eye, either um, unpicking it to see how they've done things or trying to guess where they're going with things um, or just going, oh, damn, that's a good line. Um, and then there's sort of, it will either incentivize you to want to go and write something that's just as good or it will sort of depress you because you'll think, oh, I'll never write anything that's as good. So you'll never, if you if you do become a comedy writer, just fair warning, you'll never enjoy comedy innocently sort of in the same way just as a viewer there'll always be something some mechanics going on I actually um I nearly got kicked out of my family Christmas um for um for being Jewish no um for, um, <laughs> for uh, we were watching Would I Lie to You and I was explaining how how the writing works and what what goes on behind the scenes and my grandma sort of just switched it off and she was she was, uh, I was like fine we, you know she she's a retired teacher we'll watch a show about teaching and you don't tell us anything about teaching while we're watching it and we all just sat there in frosty silence <laughs> for a while so yeah it makes you a spoil sport for everyone else um unless you're someone with self-control who can keep their mouth shut um but I am not so, yeah, I'm, I'm lots of fun. Come and watch TV with me. <laughs> It'd be like a DVD commentary. It is. It's like a really annoying DVD commentary by someone who had nothing to do with the show and is just sitting on their armchair wishing they could write something as good. That's that's what it's like. Again, please, please do come over and watch TV with me. I'm, I'm a hoot. Sarah, it's been absolutely lovely. What is next for you? I'm, I'm, I'm working on some things, which I know is a thing that writers say when they they're working on things that they can't yet talk about but I am working on things um and then obviously you know hopefully coming back to regular sporadic um stints on different topical shows um and you can find me on twitter tweeting controversial opinions that will make everybody angry um so that's I do that a lot as well it's been absolutely lovely Sarah thank you for coming on and sharing your top 10 with us thank you thank you for having me so that was Sarah Gibbs 
Sadly, I must send Sarah my heartfelt condolences. Uh, Tonks, the cat that was listening to us record, sadly passed away a few days ago. Tonks was Sarah's therapy cat and a very close companion. So I'm thinking of you, Sarah, at this horrible time. Coming up next week on the show, um, I've had a bit of a sojourn to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and there will follow a series of podcasts recorded there. First up is Jack of Every Trade, Master of All, Stuart Laws. <laughs> <laughs>